Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So let's start tonight with an adorable story, actually. Let's start with something just bright and fun and just unabashedly wholesome. (laughs) I think we could probably all use a bit of that right now. Um, You know, the world is kind of a terrible place some days, but this is just a really lovely story about a really adorable bird. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about Snowball, the sulfur-crested cockatoo. Now, uh, Snowball's already been a little bit famous uh, because over the years, Uh, he has developed a series of amazing dance moves. (laughs) And so scientists first analyzed Snowball's dance moves back in 2014, and now they've completed a more thorough examination, declaring that Snowball has invented 14 dance moves. Now, it makes parrots the only non-human animal that spontaneously dances. One would expect species that are closer genetically to humans to show this behavior, but we don't see it in chimpanzees, study first author R. Joanne Zhao Keen, uh, research assistant professor in psychology at San Diego State University, uh, noted. But parrots are unique. We think they have certain neural and cognitive capacities that come together that allow them, when exposed to music, to be able to dance. Now, obviously, I will link to a video of Snowball dancing on the Facebook page. Um, and yes, it is it is everything that you want in a video of a bird dancing. <laughs> and so in the initial video of Snowball, which was filmed by his owner, Irina Schultz, uh, who is in that one not dancing with him, Uh, only offering occasional encouragements like, good boy, he dances to Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun and Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. What's interesting is that he actually has more dance moves for Girls Just Want to Have Fun, um, which I thought was kind of interesting um, because I think also it is a little bit more of a, um, the music is actually a little more diverse in the uh, parts of it than maybe Another One Bites the Dust. I feel like that's a little more, uh, sort of, uh, it's a little more, uh, even throughout the entire song. Now the researchers defined a dance move as movements that are clearly intentional, but which are not an efficient means of achieving any plausible external goal, such as basic locomotion. They also needed to last at least six frames of video and occur at least twice in the video session. Some of his moves include a body roll, a head bobs, head banging, that one's quite fun to watch, uh, foot lifting, and voguing, which is described as head moves from one side of lifted foot to the other. (laughs) Now, apparently he does do each move a little less than a human would, but Schultz notes that he dances slightly differently when joined by a human. So why the heck has he taught himself how to dance? Why has this parrot done this? This is not something that Schultz trained him to do. He did this on his own. He receives no specific rewards for it. And so uh, Joa Keen and her colleagues think it might have to do with five traits that humans and parrots have in common. So those are vocal learning, Nonverbal movement imitation, forming long-term social bonds, the ability to learn and memorize these complex action sequences, and paying attention to certain movements for communicating. And so the ability to learn and mimic language is unique to parrots and humans, which might help explain why non-human primates have not developed dance. 
Now, obviously, some of them can be taught to dance, but they don't develop it spontaneously. Um, and also, of course, we know that corvids can also learn how to mimic language, but they don't seem to have that kind of almost full understanding of it at, in, at times at the way that parrots do. And so uh, parrots seem to understand language in a way that corvids just haven't shown yet. Um, so for instance, Alex, the very famous uh, African gray parrot, uh, he was known for solving problems when asked questions. He really seemed to be talking to his um, lab partners and his, um, you know, the people who, the scientists who worked with him, he seemed to really actually be cognizant of what they were asking him. And of course, you know, there's still some wiggle room there as to whether or not that was actually what was going on, but it definitely seemed like it. And so, um, you know, corvids can be very good at talking, but they mostly are just repeating things that have been said to them. And so the idea is that Snowball basically noticed Schultz dancing, and since she's part of his flock, he learned how to imitate her movements in the way that a bird can, uh, so that he could join in and make a social connection. At least that's the working hypothesis, because of course, you know, we need to do a little more research before uh, we can say that is absolutely true. Uh, so he is not just a smarty pants, but he is probably a smarty pants who cares for his owner. <laughs> and so, um, Obviously, Snowball isn't the only parrot who dances, um, and it would be interesting to see a comparison of different parrots' dance moves to see if there is some sort of universal set of moves or if each has adopted different styles. So I definitely think that should uh, get some funding. We need to get funding for someone to compare different parrots' dance styles because I just think the world needs to know about this. <laughs> And so, you know, sometimes you just really have to focus on something that is just a delight and something that is just knowledge for knowledge's sake, um, you know, and it can help us learn more about, you know, why humans dance and how social interactions develop and things like that. Like, but sometimes you just really want to watch a video of a parrot rocking out. <laughs> okay. So let's move on. Um, I definitely wanted to start with that tonight because as soon as I read about it, I was like, oh, that is so wholesome. And uh, again, I do always try and keep this um, this radio uh, show as kind of light and uh, uplifting as possible, though obviously I do sometimes talk about uh, important things and uh, things that are not so great and um, things that are often infuriating because I think it's important not to just bury your head in the sand, but, um, you know, someone, I was talking with someone the other day about global warming and I'm just like, I just can't uh, talk about that very much because it's just such an existential horror that, um, you know, it's, it's hard to spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, you know, I do read articles about, you know, the ice caps melting and uh, parts of uh, Alaska that are the permafrost is completely thawing out and all of these things. And I just, I just feel like it's a little too overwhelming. I don't want to act like it doesn't happen. Um, so occasionally I will do one of these little kind of uh, inserts about it, but I just feel like the news does a pretty good job, at least. Not great, but at least uh, the sort of mainstream news is doing an okay job of reminding people that this is a problem and that uh, serious people who are not in the U.S. government um, are concerned about it. And um, it's really upsetting. I've read s several recent stories about uh, basically the government literally forcing people uh, to take out references to global warming, and that is horrifying. And um, so yeah, but I think that it's mostly okay to spend an hour talking about interesting things and occasionally dipping into things that are uh, unfortunate realities, but mostly sticking with things like, you know, really cool breakthroughs in medicine and frankly, dancing parrots. So <laughs> uh, let's move on now. And we are going to talk for a second about an old favorite around here, uh, which is 
yet another uh, dose of speculation about the interstellar object, uh, Onamuamua. And so while Oumuamua's uh, interstellar origins make it makes it unique, many of its other properties are perfectly consistent with objects in our own solar system, says Dr. Robert Jedeke, an astronomer at the University of Hawaii's Institute for Astronomy and a member of an international group of asteroid and comet, comet experts called the Oumuamua ISSI team. And so the team described the object as being red in color, uh, like many other small objects in the solar system. But otherwise, <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's kind of the full stop of where where uh, it resembles other objects. It's red. Other objects are red. Um, I just think that's kind of funny. Um, but otherwise, it is still very weird. Uh, it most likely has an elongated uh, cigar like shape and has a spin pattern that is also weird. It's just weird, uh, which is more akin to a bottle being spun on a floor than a normal object that has a rotation that's, yeah, it's, it's weird. Its motion through the solar system is particularly puzzling. While it appeared to accelerate along its trajectory, a typical feature of comets, we could find no evidence of the gaseous emissions that typically create this acceleration, Dr. Knight said. The motion of Oumuamua didn't simply follow gravity along a parabolic orbit as we would expect from an asteroid, but visually it hasn't ever displayed any of the comet-like characteristics we'd expect. There is no discernible coma, the cloud of ice, dust, and gas that surrounds active comets, nor a dust tail or gas jets. But there are a number of ways, nonetheless, that it could be considered explainable by natural phenomena. And so uh, one of the suggestions is that it might have been ejected from a solar system by a giant planet similar to Jupiter. We have never seen anything like Oumuamua in our solar system. It really, it's really a mystery still, said team member Dr. Matthew Knight. Um, and so, uh, but our preference is to stick with analogs we know, unless or until we find something unique. The alien space, the alien spacecraft hypothesis is a fun idea, but our analysis analysis suggests there is a whole host of natural phenomena that could explain it. So again, it's almost certainly a natural object, but it's also a totally weird and wonderful object, which will apparently continue to puzzle astronomers for years to come, which is okay because science isn't about finding the answer. Science is an ever-changing and ever-expanding field of answers <laughs> that work uh, but might be replaced in the future. And so, uh, again, kind of hearkening back to our problems with dealing with climate change, humans have a really hard time with, in, with uncertainty. Uh, I think that with the fact that, that a lot of scientists can't just say, yes, this is happening, really upsets people and really makes them think that that's, that therefore there is actually something suspect about it. But the problem is, is that that's a fundamental tenet of science, is that science never says anything is true, because science knows that we might find out something later on that would cause it to no longer be true. There are many things that we know of over the centuries of written history that people absolutely totally believed was true, and then 20 years later, it was found to be absolutely totally false. And so modern science has really responded to that fact by saying we don't give definitives. But the problem is, is that humans really don't like non-definitives. And so I think that's why a lot of people uh, don't get science, why they tend to shy away from it, why they tend to um, question medical science, especially. And of course, most pseudoscience offers those concrete definitive answers, and that's why it's so appealing to people. And of course, that's also one of the ways that you can tell it's not real science. If somebody is trying to give you a definitive yes or no about something that is a scientific question, 
unless they are, uh, unless they are doing a sort of general overview, talking to kids or something like that about like, you know, say, is the sun the center of the, of our solar system? Sure. Yes. That, that's a fairly easy thing that you can say yes about. You don't have to say, well, possibly, maybe, you know, that there are certain things that we can be basically certain about. But even then, we still always want to leave out some sort of wiggle room in order to make sure that we're not being too overly, uh, that we're not being too overly confident because we know of all of the times when people have been wrong. But I think that that's a fundamental problem with science being translated to the general populace because I think people don't like that. They don't like that. They want people to say yes or no. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a struggle that people who do science and people that talk about science really have to continue to constantly think about and constantly rethink um, how we present things. Because I think that um, until we get to a place where people understand science better in general, which we're not going to get to anytime soon, we have to find better ways to interact with people. Um, so yeah. All right. Again, a little bit of soapboxing tonight. I do apologize. Uh, but I do have several stories. So let's actually talk about, uh, some of the stories that I brought tonight. So this one is about, we're going to go from space to below the ocean, which of course is one of my favorite places. A newly discovered fish has been named in honor of Black Panther. The Vibranium Fairy Wrasse, which is uh, Kerhalabaris wakanda, uh, was discovered by marine biologist Louise Rocha off the coast of Zanzibar, which is, of course, off the east coast of Africa. He was helping in discovering that it was, he was helped in discovering that it was a new species by his collaborate, collaborator, Yi Kai T who is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. Now, T had actually been hoping for someone to find this or a similar fish in East Africa because the area represented a gap in the distribution of fairy wrasses. Um, so fairy wrasses are just little fish, um, and the fairy ones tend to have bright coloration, obviously. Um, wrasses are actually a very common fish in the sea. Um, these little guys, um, they're kind of like, a little bit like guppies, but they're obviously not the same thing. Um, and so when Luis sent me a photo of this new fish he collected, I knew instantly what it was, he said. He found the quote unquote missing piece to this biogeographical puzzle. And so the small fish, uh, which has a bright yellow head, uh, a purple and uh, white mottled flank and a blue tail, lives in rubble areas around coral reefs and eats mostly plankton. They live at a depth of around 164 to 262 feet, and thus it requires special equipment to be able to dive that far down. Now, of course, sadly, Rocha also found an abundance of discarded fishing gear and other garbage. It is sobering that so much uncharacterized biodiversity is lost before it is even discovered, T said. Every new species we describe is a reminder that we need to act to act fast before they are all gone. Now, the discovery is part of the California Academy of Sciences Hope for Reefs research program. Twenty expeditions have been launched all over the globe, with a specific target being scientifically unexplored areas. Now, Rocha is one of the program's four co-leaders. T, on the other hand, as I mentioned, is still a grad student, but apparently he is quite the scientist and has been for quite some time. Even back when he was a high school student, his passion for coral reef fishes made him one of the most knowledgeable people on fish taxonomy in the world, Rocha said. When I am in the field, I often send him photos of what we are catching because I know I will get an ID faster than trying to go through field guides. And so, uh, yeah, it's very cool that there is this, you know, person who is just so excited about these fish. And so, of course, 
whenever something is named after a pop culture reference, uh, there are some in taxonomy who are less than thrilled. But, and I completely agree, T notes that it's important to try and pull the general public in. Research is important, but is equally important to convey it to people with more general interests. Taxonomy is often seen as boring, but it has massive implications for biodiversity conservation, inspiring the next generation of taxonomists by making science sound exciting is our goal. And so, yes, I think that is an extremely worthy goal. And so hopefully now that this little fish has been given such a cool name, uh, we'll be able to preserve it. And hopefully we will be able to give some hope to coral reefs around the world uh, because they are under stress and outright attack uh, from both human caused climate change and human garbage. Um, one of the biggest problems in the oceans is actually that discarded fishing gear. Um, discarded fishing gear is a huge, huge problem um, in uh, the oceans. And it's something that we really should be trying to find a way to uh, deal with. But of course, there's so many other things that we need to deal with as well that um, I know it be can become pretty overwhelming. All right. Uh, and so, yeah, let's uh, take a minute to take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos. Um, do it a little bit early just because I this other story is going to take a few more minutes to talk about. So let's do that. And then we will come back and talk about uh, another instance of the sonification of data. And uh, we'll even listen to a song made up, a song quote unquote, uh, made up of uh, the sonification of data based on um, proteins. So hang on for just a moment while we do some PSAs and some show promos, then we'll come back and talk about that. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation, up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PBPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. 
Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. And definitely take that advice. Um, my mom actually who never goes pretty much anywhere that would probably have uh, ticks, you would think, as the sort of normal places with, like, um, uh, tall grass and stuff like that. She actually got bit by a tick and had a rash, and so she's had to go to the doctor and get some antibiotics So as a precaution. So definitely uh, be on the lookout for ticks this summer uh, and every summer. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so they're definitely out there, and you definitely want to be sure that you're paying attention. Okay, so like I said, we're going to talk about a story that deals with sonification of data. And so this is actually pretty uh, a, a pretty new technique that science is trying to adopt. And I think it's really cool. And obviously, it's great for radio. <laughs> uh, and so basically, it is turning some sort of data into human perceived sounds. And of course, often it ends up being rather musical. And so MIT professor, uh, the MIT professor, uh, Marcus Bueller, and uh, his colleagues took the natural vibration vibrational frequencies, excuse me, of 20 types of amino acids and converted them into sound frequencies that humans can hear. And so uh, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. And so the result was a scale of 20 unique notes. Now these tones are actually less notes per se than more, they're more like chords with an overlay of many different frequencies representing each amino acid. And so the researchers translated several of the proteins into audio compositions with the duration of each tone specified by the different 3D structures which make up the physical shape of the molecule. The whole concept is to get a better handle on understanding proteins and their vast array of variations, said Professor Brute. Bueller, who is the head of the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at MIT. Proteins make up the structural material of bone, skin, and muscle, but are also enzymes, signaling chemicals, molecular switches, and a host of other functional materials that make up the machinery of all living things. But their structures, including the way they fold themselves into the shapes that often determine their functions, are exceedingly complicated. They have their own language, and we don't know how it works. We don't know what makes a silk protein into a silk protein, or what patterns reflect the functions found in an enzyme. We don't know the code. And so uh, sonification can help the researchers learn more about these pro proteins. And so um, the way that a lot of this sonification works is that it just gives you another layer of being able to kind of um, wrap your mind around this data. And they also gave the data to an AI, which had been trained to recognize specific musical patterns that matched specific protein architectures. The program then generated scores, which were translated into new-to-nature proteins. There are no synthetic or natural instruments used, showing how this new source of sounds can be utilized as a creative platform, Professor Buell said. Musical motifs derived from both naturally existing proteins and AI-generated proteins are used throughout the examples, and all of the sounds, including some that resemble bass or snare drums, are also generated from the sounds of amino acids. So let's take a second and listen to one of these compositions.
Okay, so that was the Orchestra of Amino Acids. Um, you know, I think that's as good as some ambient that I've heard over the years. Um, so yeah, I think it is um, definitely a thing that we are definitely going to uh, probably hear more about is this idea of the sonification of... Um, data because I think it's really cool and again it's another one of those ways where like people who are just regular people can be drawn into this um, world of science and so hopefully we'll hear more about that okay so let us move on now and talk about a different kind of AI a rather different kind of AI. Um, now, of course, I've been talking a lot about AIs, uh, artificial intelligence programs, because there's a lot of work going on in them. Uh, and so I am definitely interested in them and definitely am going to probably be bringing you more stories about them in the future. <laughs> Sorry. And so computer scientists have developed an AI called Pluribus, which is apparently quite the card sharp. And so the program has been able to defeat some of the world's best players at six-person, no-limit Texas Hold'em poker. A similar program, Liberatus, was developed by the researchers at Carnegie Mellon University, and that was able to beat the players one-on-one. -on -one. But this new version, also created by Tuomas Sandholm and Noah Brown, uh, is able to beat five other players in one of the most popular forms of the game. And so in games with real monetary stakes, uh, Pluribus managed to win the pot at a rate of about $1,000 per hour. Now, while many AI researchers have developed programs that can outcompete humans in perfect information, two-player, zero-sum games, uh, wherein both players have complete knowledge of what's happening, uh, such, in, such as in uh, games like chess 
or go, uh, where the board and pieces are clearly visible, everybody knows what's going on. But poker, of course, on the other hand, is an information incomplete game. There are different elements, including you don't know what cards people are holding, and uh, there are things that are masked or unpredictable, like betting amounts and bluffing. And so with multiple players, of course, the game becomes even more complex. Now, Brown and Sandholm did not develop this program to make a killing at professional gambling, uh, though goodness knows they probably could. Uh, Poker is actually seen as a good analog for other complex interactions that humans encounter all the time. While I was not focused on any particular application, I do think this research can be applied to a wide variety of settings, such as cybersecurity, fraud detection, combating adversarial behavior, and even having a self-driving car navigate traffic, Brown told Gizmodo. Now, the researchers used two test scenarios. In the first, they pitted Pluribus against 13 different professional players, uh, defined as those who had won at least a million dollars playing the game, in the six-person configuration. Now, this involved 10,000 hands played over 12 days. Uh, A total of $50,000 was distributed to the players to make the test worthwhile to them. Now, the games were blind, with none of the human players knowing who they were playing against. Each was given an alias that lasted throughout the trial. In the second scenario, two poker legends, Darren Alaya and Chris Ferguson, were, p- were each pitted against five identical versions of Pluribus. During all of the trials, Pluribus registered wins with a statistical significance which the researchers referred to as quote-unquote, superhuman. We mean superhuman in the sense that it performs better than the best humans, said Brown, who is completing his PhD as a research scientist at Facebook AI. The bot won by about five big blinds per hundred hands of poker when playing against five elite human professionals, which professionals consider to be a very high win rate. To beat elite professionals by that margin is considered a decisive win. It's a bit tough to qualify this in a simple way, but one way to understand it is that if the bot were playing for real money, it would have won about $1,000 per hour. Now, in order to achieve this feat, the researchers employed a variety of strategies, including some new algorithms that they developed themselves. And so before play began, Pluribus developed a blueprint strategy for how it would play by playing poker with itself for eight days straight. And so uh, this is kind of a new thing, interestingly, uh, where in the past, AI programs were taught by sort of viewing human uh, actions and human developed things. But Pluribus was not primed with information from human players. It developed a native strategy by playing trillions of hands against itself to slowly develop strategies that led to winning more money. And so once test playing began, Pluribus would calculate the possible moves by each other player and plan accordingly as with chess or go. However, in those cases, the program often it tries to calculate out to the, end, to the end of the game. In poker, that would be, quote-unquote, computationally prohibitive, which basically means there's not enough processor power in the entire room in order to do that, uh, according to the researchers. In Pluribus, we used a new way of doing, of doing search that doesn't have to search all the way to the end of the game, said Brown. Instead, it can stop after a few moves. This makes the search algorithm much more scalable. In particular, it allows us to reach superhuman performance while only training for the equivalent of less than $150 on a cloud computing service and playing in real time on just two CPUs. And so, of course, one of the important aspects of the programming was that Pluribus was programmed to be unpredictable. It was taught not only to bet big when it had a good hand, but also to bluff and make different moves to prevent other players from picking up on a pattern. One surprise was Pluribus's ability to exploit the donk betting strategy. And so this is when a player matches a bet in one round, but then bets again in the next round. 
Elite players consider this a weak move and will instead raise in that first round to bring up the pool of money. The players admitted that this could be a way to make that there could be a way to make that work to your advantage, but it's too complicated to truly calculate it properly. Of course, Pluribus was able to develop a way to donk bet much more efficiently and in a way that was not easily exploited by the other players. The AI also made much larger bets than humans usually make when it had a good hand, because, you know, people are basically generally risk-averse. They don't want to lose everything just because they have a good hand. That allowed it to make much more money with good hands than humans were. One of the participants, Jason Less, noted that, I probably have more experience battling against best-in-class poker AI systems than any other poker professional in the world. I know all the spots to look for weaknesses, all the tricks to try to take advantage of a computer's shortcomings. In this competition, the AI played a sound, game theory optimal strategy that you really only see from top human professionals, and despite my best efforts, I was not successful in finding a way to exploit it. I would not want to play in a game of poker where this AI poker bot was at the table. (laughs) And so, um... One of the only limitations was that Pluribus has not yet played standard 10-player games, and it was limited to bets of no more than $10,000. Now, of course, unfortunately, this really shows that AI can also become even better than humans at human tasks, Um, which is, of course, a little bit of a concern, but, you know, we're, we're still working on that. Uh, and so they can become better at tasks where even with hidden variables and they can teach themselves with just the basic rules. They don't need input from human examples. <sighs> so, yeah, but, you know, it's it's going to be OK. <laughs> so let's move on to a better story about technology. And so uh, scientists headed by Pietro Melillo of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory have developed a new program which analyzes satellite data to reveal subtle structural changes that may indicate the deterioration of a bridge, which are often not even able to be perceived by the human eye. And so that's a big thing to be able to do that. This is a huge breakthrough since many bridges, as we know, throughout the country are at the end of their design lives, and many of them have severe structural issues that have not been addressed. And so the August 2018 collapse of the Morandi Bridge near Genoa, Italy, which killed a dozen people, was the catalyst for the research. Researchers from NASA, the University of Bath in England, and the Italian Space Agency used Synthetic Aperture Radar, SAR, measurements from several different satellites and reference points to map structural changes to the bridge, slight displacements that indicated deterioration, between 2003 and the time of the collapse. They developed a technique that could see a millimeter-sized could see millimeter-sized changes to the bridge, which previously would not have been detected by standard processing of SAR data. They found that signs that the deck near the pier that ultimately collapsed started to show subtle signs of deterioration as early as 2015. They also found more significant signs of structural change between March 2017 and August 2018, which was a hidden indication that at least part of the bridge had become unstable. This is about developing a new technique that can assist in the characterization of the health of bridges and other infrastructure. We couldn't have forecasted this particular collapse because standard assessment techniques available at the time couldn't detect what we can see now. But going forward, this technique, combined with techniques already in use, has the potential to do a lot of good. We can't solve the entire problem of structural safety, but we can add a new tool to the standard procedures to better support maintenance considerations. Now, the technique is currently limited to areas that have regular coverage by SAR satellites. However, NASA and the Indian Space Research Organization are planning to launch a new SAR satellite 
which will greatly expand coverage in 2022. Now, the mission of the satellite is to observe and measure global environmental changes and hazards, but will also allow engineers to use the data to survey bridges once a week. And so, of course, that's if NASA has the money for it, because we there's been a lot of uh, goings on in NASA lately, and this whole uh, craziness with Trump and his insistence on going to the moon and then working towards going to Mars is just, it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's not ideal. We're not having a good time here with uh, NASA. There's been a whole bunch of shakeups. A bunch of people have been basically moved out of positions they've held for years. And um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a worry, so we're just going to have to keep an eye on NASA, um, but it should be okay. So uh, I want to move on now to a story that I want to give a uh, warning about because it is a little bit, um, it, it's, you know, definitely a trigger warning for uh, sort of body horror a little bit, um, but I think it's important to talk about because I uh, don't know that everybody knows about this. So I think it's a good thing to talk about to let people know that this kind of thing can happen. Um, and so a UK uh, report has come out that a man lost sight in his right eye uh, due to the fact that he uh, kept his uh, contact lenses in while he was showering. Now, I don't wear contacts. I wear glasses. So I don't know if this is something that people tend to do. Um, but it turns out that he uh, contracted a rare parasitic infection. And uh, so he required over 18 months of intensive treatments. And uh, there is still a distinct possibility that he may never regain uh, sight in that eye. So uh, this young man is Nick Humphreys, a 29-year-old senior reporter at the local uh, Shropshire Star, and uh, he basically wrote a column about it for that outlet uh, this past week, actually this week, excuse me. And so uh, according to him, the trouble began in January of 2018. His right eye, which had been noticeably dry for a week, became incredibly sensitive to light and filled with pain. So he, of course, tried eye drops and, uh, and that didn't really help. And so he ended up going to an eye doctor where they discovered that there was an ulcer. And so he then went to the hospital and, uh, it was revealed that he had an infection in his cornea, which was caused by a protozoan, uh, which is a tiny little, uh, animal called, uh, acanthoamoeba. Lurking in our water and soil is a parasitic bug which can destroy your eye and leave you blind, he wrote rather succinctly. Uh, and so basically, uh, you know, you try and clean out the eye with disinfecting drops. But in March, he basically lost vision in that eye when the infection returned. Um, and so he has been in an, inc an incredible amount of pain and uh, has done a bunch of different um, procedures in order to try and get things to recover. Um, he even, he even uh, underwent experimental surgery uh, where layers of his eye were peeled away so that they could put in a heavy dose of vitamins and ultraviolet radiation. Um, and it just, the, the surgery seems to have actually made the infection go away. Um, and so he will need to have another surgery, um, later on to see if it's actually going to, um, help. And, uh, that is going to be in a while. He's going to have to have a full corneal transplant. Um, and so hopefully he'll be able to get some vision back, but it's really important to remember that, uh, not only should you not do this, but the other thing, because, you know, a lot of people might be freaking out about this, is that it's actually very rare. So, yes, we talk about this, um, but the uh, acanthoamoeba keratitis is very rare. Um, 
basically amoebas don't really like eyes. Um, that's not their preferred home, um, but it is becoming more common in some areas, uh, though more in the UK. And so uh, there's a whole thing, thing about, um, you know, contact lenses. And so basically people who uh, use contact lenses, you have to actually be much more careful uh, than I think some people are. Uh, a lot of the time you have to make sure that you're not exposing your uh, contact lenses to just tap water. That's really the, the big thing here. And, um, you know, you definitely have to make sure that you shouldn't shower with them. Uh, don't swim with them. Uh, don't be, um, you know, running them under tap water again. And so you just want to make sure that you are keeping them as clean and as safe as possible because, um, you know, losing eyesight because of improperly used contacts is not a good thing. <laughs> it's totally defeating the purpose of having contact lenses. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's very important for people to know that, but also in, on the other side, not to freak out, um, because yes, these sorts of things can happen, but they are exceedingly rare. They are definitely not the kind of thing that's going to happen every day. And, you know, there isn't an epidemic of people losing sight from amoebas that get trapped by their contact lenses. But I think it's important to talk about it because, again, there's always these stories that are very alarmist. Um, you know, a couple last week or the week before, there was this alarmist story about how uh, people, how young people were developing uh, bone spurs, which then became horns uh, because of too much uh, cell phone use, which of course it was not based on anything real. Uh, it was this one small study by a chiropractor, uh, who did not do any kind of proper, um, blinding of the study. There was no, um, you know, the, the study itself is just a mess. And also it was a tiny amount of growth in an area where there's already a, um, where there's already bone. And so it wasn't even that there was some sort of new giant spur coming out of the back of their necks. It was simply that some of them seemed to have a larger version of this. And of course, larger version of this is also uh, subject to ambiguity because who decides what is the proper length of this area and that's also up in the air so anyways that's all for tonight and uh please do stay tuned for civil politics uh it will be live tonight sue and genre will be in in just a few minutes so again do hang on for that have a good night this show is part of the planet side productions network for more information please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening